you have your Bibles this morning, you can open with me and follow along in Luke chapter 11. That's where we're going to be today, Luke chapter 11. This morning we come to a story, it's kind of an interesting note, it's an interesting story in the sense it gives us just a peek into some part of Jesus' life and the normalcy of his life. Jesus went to have a meal There's no real indication for certain in the original language whether this was breakfast, lunch, or dinner. It was probably later in the day. A meal with a Pharisee. Not all the Pharisees had made up their mind what they had thought about Jesus. And so obviously this was a fellow who had yet to make up his mind because he wanted to meet with Jesus. He wanted to have Jesus into his home and share a meal. Meals were, as they are in our culture today, a place to share fellowship and to have intimacy with other people. So he invited Jesus into his home to have fellowship and to have an intimate moment with Jesus, to get to know him better and to decide for himself, and most likely, to decide for himself, most likely had yet to make up his mind, or he wouldn't have done this, to decide, who is Jesus? Who is this fellow that I hear so much fuss about and so much talk about? And when Jesus walks into the man's house, he skips over the washing of his hands. You would walk into someone's home for an intimate time of fellowship and it was the custom of the day, not something that was to be missed, the custom of the day, to dip your hands, to wash your hands so that you might be ceremonially clean. This was not something that they did to wash their hands and to get the germs off their hands so they didn't get sick at the table, right? This was just something that they did as a religious ceremony so that they would be ceremonially clean. If they'd had some contact with Gentiles and their business practices, if they'd been somewhere where Gentiles have been, this would, in effect, cleanse them and make them right. Jesus intentionally skipped this when he walked into the man's house, and he did that so that he would have a teachable moment. Don't we love that? When God creates teachable moments in our lives. Sometimes it makes us uncomfortable, though, doesn't it? It made this man very uncomfortable. We look at this passage of Scripture and we see that when Jesus walked into this man's house and when he skipped it, he was astonished, the Scripture says. It shocked him. Perhaps he was even a little bit offended that this man would walk into his home and not wash himself as was the custom of the day so that he would be clean religiously speaking. He was astonished. The Pharisees had created many ways to outwardly follow God. Some of these were scriptural, based on scripture, and many were not. These many ceremonies allowed them to justify their life before themselves and before others. Some folks are always creating ways to justify themselves before God and others, aren't they? We say, well, this is really kind of a crazy thing this fellow did here. These fellows would wash their hands and do these all these different acts that outwardly were religious acts that would outwardly demonstrate or justify their life. We say they need something within, something that's real, right? We would never be guilty of such, right? Folks in our generation would never be guilty of such, right? We can be guilty of the same thing. See, some folks come to church and they believe their mere attendance is in some way going to assuage God's anger towards their sin. I was not going to be angry over my sin or my wickedness this week because I went to church. Other people think that they give a few dollars in the offering plate and they'll just buy God off. 
God owes them something. Other folks think, well, I am going to do good works. And they believe their good works in some way will make God or put God in their debt. God owes me something because of my good deeds. A lot of folks are basing their very salvation on some of those types of things. Their offerings, their attendance, and their good deeds. No difference between them and what the Pharisees were doing in the first century. They had a great many things that they did outwardly in an effort to please or to be pleasing to God. They wanted to make themselves pleasing to God. And there are a great many people who find many different ways to try to make themselves pleasing to God. Human history is on the one hand the story of man's fall from grace and subsequent effort to cover up both his sin and the consequences of his sin. And on the other hand, God's work to forgive mankind his sin and defeat the power of sin, the tyranny of sin over his life. That's really what human history is about. Folks trying to cover up their sin and trying to make themselves a better person and try in some way to make themselves acceptable or pleasing to God and others who have realized that God did all of the work through Jesus Christ on the cross and I must just simply place my faith in him so that he will make me right. case of the Pharisees, they were doing their very, very best to make themselves pleasing to God rather than trust in God's coming salvation. See, Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith in God. Paul says that to us in the book of Romans. It was faith in the coming salvation of the Lord. They didn't understand everything of what that would mean. Abraham did not have the revelation that you and I have, but he understood that his salvation and his future was in God, and so he believed and put his trust in God to take care of him in every way that God could or would. It was by faith that he was declared righteous. See, throughout all of human history, it is either by faith or by works that you will find or try to find righteousness before God. Now remember, again, I haven't mentioned it in a while, the hillbilly definition of righteousness. We like our hillbilly dictionary here for those who are guests. To be righteous is to be God's kind of person or to do things God's kind of way if you are acting in a righteous sort of way. So mankind throughout history has either attempted through effort to make himself righteous or has depended upon God by faith to become righteous. God is not satisfied that we would look righteous on the outside. He wants to make us righteous on the inside so that we will act righteous on the outside. What these Pharisees were doing were they were attempting to be righteous or act righteous on the outside in some vain attempt to make themselves righteous on the inside or at least to make everyone think that they were righteous on the inside. God is not satisfied with that. Jesus makes that clear in this story. He says, I want something deeper for you. I want you to become righteous. Not just act righteous. I want you to become something different. And here's the great tragedy. Is there are a great many people who believe, sincerely believe, they can never be anything other than what they are today. And you know, in yourself, you cannot. I remember one fellow I shared the gospel with one time refused to accept the gospel because he refused to believe that even God could make him anything other than the wicked person that he was. And at least he got that much right. He realized that he was a bad person. 
Most folks don't want to do that. See, the big problem here in this story, the big problem with the Pharisees is that they were full of pride. They loved the pomp and circumstance of what it meant to be a Pharisee. There was no way, no how that they were ever going to come to a place that they admitted any kind of religious or spiritual weakness. They had the air that they had it all together. There was no way they were going to admit anything different. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus says, you're wicked. You're a wicked person inside. And you've got to admit that. You've got to let God take care of your wickedness. Jesus said in another place in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You've got to recognize your spiritual poverty before you can enjoy God's spiritual riches. You've got to recognize and admit that you've got a problem before you realize you need a Savior from your problem. I've said it before, but we make such a grave mistake. Oftentimes when we share the gospel with people, letting people know about all of the benefits of salvation without the need of salvation, saying you're going to have love, joy, peace, and heaven someday without first helping them to understand you've broken God's law, you are an enemy of God, you're at enmity with God, you are a sinner, you are wicked, you are in a place of hopelessness, and you need someone or something to save you from that place to take you over to the place that God wants your life to be wrapped up in his love, a member of his family, with great hope for eternity, eternal life. So we've got to get people lost before we get them saved. Jesus says, you're a wicked man. You're doing all of these things outwardly, all of this religious show in an effort to justify your life before others, before yourself, and before God. You're trying to convince everyone you're righteous through your outward acts when in reality, you know that your heart is wicked. And this man knew his heart was wicked. He knew that there was something wrong here. See, the Holy Spirit convicts us. The Holy Spirit shows us the truth. God has given us a conscience. We know that there's something wrong. Something's not right, don't we? Anyone who has genuinely been saved from sin and the power of sin has reached some place where they admitted what they knew all along and that they had a problem. They're separated from God. They're sinners and they can't stop sinning. And their sin is an affront to a holy God. They've broken God's heart. This is where a lot of church members have lost their soul and gone from the pew to hell. They came to church, joined, maintained outward appearances of righteousness without ever truly admitting their sinfulness and their need of a Savior. One of the greatest tragedies on the day of judgment will be those who sat in a pew Sunday after Sunday putting on airs. And it won't be just folks sitting in the pew. There'll be some that had stood behind a pulpit. Be some who served on mission fields. Who did great things who will stand and say, Lord, we did all of these great things. Did we not preach in your name? Did we not pray in your name? Did we not share the gospel in your name? Did we not heal the sick in your name? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Never had a relationship with you. Never had any reality to what you publicly displayed as such. It wasn't real. See, what the Pharisees had done in their days, the same thing man has done 
forever in all of human history before this time and after that time. Mankind, if they will not depend upon Christ, they will not depend upon God for their salvation, will depend upon self and self-effort for their justification before God, to be made right before Him. Because we're full of pride. And we have a problem admitting there's something wrong. We're like the fellow who was driving along with his wife on the highway. His wife leaned over to him. This is a true story, by the way. I heard a pastor friend of mine tell us about himself. So he leaned over. His wife leaned over to him and said, Honey, I think we need to stop and get gas. And he said, We're fine. I got this. I take care of things. You don't worry about this. He skipped the gas station, stayed on the highway for a while, just to prove his point. Well, the light had been on for some time. They, they were past the E on the arrow. And his wife leaned over yet again and said, Honey, I think we need to stop and get gas. He said, I've got this. Stop lecturing me. Stop badgering me. I will take care of this. I don't need your input on this. And he apparently was in a mood that day. He skipped another gas station. Well, the next few exits, there were no gas stations. And he started getting a little nervous. Beads of sweat started to appear on his brows. He imagined getting out and pushing this car out in the hot sun. But not only that, having to admit that his wife was right. Another exit, no gas station. Another exit, no gas station. By this time, he's growing really worried because he knows he's about to run out of gas. And finally, up ahead, he sees an Exxon station. And so he leaves the highway. And as soon as he leaves the highway, as soon as he hits the exit, they run out of, they're running out of gas. They leave the highway. They go down the exit, go up on the service road. He coasts up into the drive and coasts right to the gas station, right in front of the nozzle so that he could get his gas. He said, I told you we're all right. Everything's fine, right? You just depend on me. Everything's fine, right? See, sometimes it appears through sheer luck and circumstance that we've got it all together, doesn't it? We've got life by the tail. We're on the top. Never the bottom, right? It's all a show. There's no reality. We have to admit we have a problem. We have to admit that we do not have life by the tail. We have to admit that we need a Savior. It's like the woman who walked in, down the aisle in a revival service one day, and she told she was a, a very proper, genteel kind of woman, and she walked down, took the evangelist's hand, and says, I want Jesus, but I am not a sinner. He told her, he said, honey, you go back down and sit back in your pew. He sent her back. He said, you just go back to your seat now. There's no place for you here. She went back to her seat. Tears running down her cheeks. She got up, walked down the aisle again. She said, I need Jesus. I am a sinner. He said, well, you come on up here. He said, we have to admit that we are sinners. We have to admit that all of the errors and all of the activity and all of the things that we've done to try to make our life right and to prove ourselves and justify ourselves are just 
filthy rags. Nothing. All real life change happens from the inside out. Now, I want to tell you a little story here and talk to you a little bit about something, about how this happens. You know, there are a lot of places that you can go, a lot of churches that will talk about life change. Nothing about wrong about that terminology at all if you understand that all real change in your life happens first with a heart change. Any change in your life that is genuine happens when you have a change of heart. You cannot just change your activity, change your habits, and genuinely be changed. It will never touch your heart. only thing and the only one that can touch your heart is Christ. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can change the heart of a human being. You can become the most disciplined person. You might be the most disciplined person in this room. You may be someone who, no matter what you do in life, whether it's exercise, diet, prayer time, Bible study time, you may be the most disciplined person in this room, but discipline and activity will never change your heart. All real life change happens when there is a heart change, and the only one that can change your heart is God. Verse 41 here is key to our understanding of this passage. He says, but give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. He's saying, you give me what's on the inside. You give me your heart. You admit you have a problem, and then you give me your heart. And I'm going to take your heart, and I'm going to make it right. And because your heart is right, everything you do is then going to be clean. Everything you do is then going to have value and purpose. You see, let me, let me just let you in on something here for just a minute. I was listening to a sermon recently, a fellow, he, he summed this up real nicely, and I'm going to take a few of the things that he said there as I tell you this and as I explain this and use it as an illustration. But the fact of the matter is, and what is reality, and what has happened to us in the church today and Christians in the 21st century and in the 20th century is that we have allowed God to become a means to an end rather than the end itself. Now, let me, let me help you understand what happens here and how the devil has duped us and fooled us. See, humanism is the philosophy that the chief end of life is man himself, the happiness of man. Everything is about us. Everything is about being happy. Now, that is nothing to do with Christianity and genuine orthodoxy at all as far as what Scripture teaches Christianity. Christianity says the chief end of man is God and the glory of God. Our purpose is to glorify God. Our, church, our purpose is to bring glory to God. We live, we exist to give glory to God. What does it mean to give glory to God? Well, it means in a nutshell to be a demonstration of God's power and His character, to make Him famous by showing and demonstrating the reality of God's existence to a world that is in darkness. That's what it means to glorify God. So we exist for the purpose of making God famous, of being a demonstration of God's power, and being a demonstration of God's character. Now, as He changes the heart of someone genuinely, we can do that. We can genuinely bring glory to God. If we give Him what's on the inside, God will change us from the inside out and our life will become a demonstration of God's power and ability to change the heart of a human being. It will be a demonstration of His character as He recreates us in the image of Jesus Christ, as He makes us more and more like Him. You with me? That's what God does when He changes us from the inside out. We exist for God's glory. But humanism says the chief end of man is man. The chief end of man is the happiness of man, to be happy. Now, 
In the 19th century, you had liberal Christianity, which said, you know, we're really not sure what's going to happen after this life. Liberal Christianity said, we're not sure we can trust the Word of God. We really don't know what's going to happen. We're just going to make your ride here on earth as happy as possible and as good as possible. You come, we'll get you involved in some social ministry. We're going to make the world heaven on earth. Now, conservative Christianity and fundamentalists reacted against that and said, we do believe the Word of God, but they stepped into into humanism, into the philosophy of humanism this way. They said, after this life is over, some glad morning, when this life is over, we're going to fly away. So they boiled everything down to a few points of theology and a few doctrinal statements and said, if you believe this, then you can know someday you'll fly away, and we're just going to grin and bear it until then, right? Now, in either case, in either case, the chief end is the happiness of man. On the one hand, you're going to just be as happy as you can on earth because we don't know what's going to happen afterwards. On the other hand, you're just going to grin and bear it on earth because someday you're going to be happy. In either instance, you have just been bartering or making deals with God for your happiness. But what Scripture says is that the chief end of man is to bring glory to God. That regardless of whether we get anything out of it, we would demonstrate his character and his power. That we would love him because he deserves to be loved and he deserves glory. See, Jesus says here, you guys are trying to justify yourself. You're trying to change yourself outwardly or demonstrate a change outwardly. That has not happened inwardly. I will take you and change you inwardly. You will become what you're supposed to be. You will live your life for what you are intended to do and intended to be. You will bring glory to God. You will be His. I want to make you the real thing. I want to make you a child of God. You see how easy we fall prey to philosophy and how it trumps theology, right theology. You see how that happens? I mean, we would say, well, there's nothing wrong with being happy, is there? I mean, God does want us to be happy, doesn't it? Well, God intends a lot of happiness for us. He did promise us in this world that we would have tribulation. He says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. God intends for us to be filled with joy as we ponder and contemplate the great promises of God, the great assurances that we have in Him in the midst of whatever our circumstances in life may bring us. Sure, God wants us to be joyful. Paul again and again says, rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice. We are supposed to rejoice in the Lord. We're supposed to have a sense of happiness because of our relationship with Christ and because of the great promises and assurances we have in Him. Absolutely. But it is not the chief end of man. See, the chief end of man is to know God, to love God, and bring glory to God. And what God is telling the Pharisee here is, come know me. Come know me. Come let me change you on the inside, make you different on the outside. Let me make you into what you're seeking and wanting and desperately needing to be. There's a festival The Hindus have. And some time ago, a few years ago, a total of 36,000 Hindu holy men were a part of an estimated crowd of 40 million who attended the two-month Kumbhala festival in India. Now, Hindus will come from all over the world for this. They want to dip in the Ganges River 
And they do this for the purpose, this ritual bathing, they do this for the purpose of the forgiveness of their sins and salvation. They believe they'll just go dip in this river. They'll be forgiven of their sins and find salvation. But not just in the dipping in the river, though. That wouldn't be quite enough. I want to read you just a little bit about the idea and the philosophy behind this. It's some thousands of people will come to this ceremony. Some start naked. <clears throat> some of them rolling on rough roads for miles, believing the festering sores on their bodies would earn them salvation. Hundreds have kept one arm lifted up for years until the arm gets shriveled with dry gangrene. Others have stood on one leg for years, hanging on a suspended sling while sleeping, all done to appease angry gods and find salvation. I need to come dip in a river. I need to hold my arm in the air for years. I need to stand on my leg. What do I need to do? Where, when is enough enough? I'll roll on the ground naked for miles before I dip in the river so I'll have festering sores when I get there so that the gods will be appeased and I'll find salvation. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Sounds crazy, isn't it? But mankind can devise all sorts of schemes to do that which only God can do. Change the heart. Now, I want to close here in just a minute, but I want to close in just asking you a question. Where are you today? How do you see yourself? And how do you view your relationship with God? Now, we just focused in the first few verses of this. We'll focus more next week on the rest at the end of the chapter. But today I want you just to think about this. I want you to think about the reality of your relationship with the living God. You know, God does actually exist. We say we know that, we believe that, but our life often demonstrates something just the opposite of that. God genuinely exists. And he has genuinely done some things for us. And he has promised certain things for us. He has made a covenant with us through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, a covenant is, is, a, is a contract, really, what he has made with us. Something that cannot be broken. It's a promise, something really deeper than a contract, something much more meaningful than that. It goes beyond a contract. It's probably a bad illustration to even say that. God has made a promise to us. God has made a promise to us. God has said, if you will come to me and have faith, believe and trust that my son Jesus came to earth, died for your sins, and rose from the dead to give you eternal life, I will change you from the inside out and make you a new person. And all of your activity will be different from that point on. Your life's purpose will be different from that point on. You will love me and have a relationship with me. I will change you. We will grow closer and more intimate in that relationship. And that will begin to change the whole of your life so that your life's purpose from that moment on can be to glorify me. Now, is that indicative of who you are? Is that indicative of your family? Is that indicative of your friends? Is that indicative of your co-workers who confess to know God but show no evidence thereof? Or who give some pieces and parts and tokens of their life to God but 
demonstrate no reality that they've genuinely given their life to Christ. Now, I ask you this question today for, for two reasons. One, you need to make sure that you're right with God, that you have genuinely been changed from the inside and that that change on the inside is working its way out into every part of your life. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, is that you might be concerned and begin to pray differently and begin to give a witness to those around you who may confess Christ, but you know in your heart you have a lot of doubts about because of the way that they have chosen to live their life. They're trying to appease God. They're trying to justify their lives. And listen, I'm not talking about judging people. All right? I'm not talking about you just standing over someone with your Bible saying you're not saved and you're going to hell and you need to get straight. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, is letting the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit and you be an instrument of the Holy Spirit to encourage them so that you might speak into their life and say things as I've said to you this morning. Only one who can change someone's heart is God. Only one who has a genuine relationship with God is someone who has come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. And he changes you from the inside out. We can begin to speak into their life and just say and talk about what Jesus means to us and who he is to us and how he's changed our life and how we're different and how our desires are different. You see, here's the real kicker. This is where the real rubber meets the road here on this. These guys, these Pharisees that we give such a hard time to, they're no different than the rest of us. They're full of pride, full of wickedness, full of self and determined to find their own way to God. Every person is born that way. We just have different names for it. Some are Pharisees. They wear that label. Others wear labels of false religions all over the world. And others wear a label of Christian, but are seeking in themselves to do what only Christ can do. See, here's where the rubber meets the road. Do we have a genuine relationship with Christ? Do our friends have a genuine relationship with Christ? Because here's what we've done. We have come to the place where we are just willing to accept a confession. Confessing with your mouth Jesus as Lord is part of what it means to become a believer. But you must believe in your heart. You must believe in your heart that Jesus is the Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. You must believe in your heart and give your life to God. Does that mean you become perfect in that moment? Absolutely not. But it begins to become so. Your life begins to become so. You see, I just want to leave you with the challenge today. Don't be a Pharisee and don't lose out on eternity because you were willing to accept outward religious signs of change without the reality thereof. This sermon today is not a complicated one. It is not one with real deep theology, really. It's not something that's difficult to understand, I don't really think. I hope it's not for us today. But the gospel itself is really very simple in and of itself, isn't it? And yet so many miss it. I'm just challenging you this morning to allow yourself to be honest with yourself.
first. And then allow yourself some honesty with friends and family around you. I had a conversation with a fellow some weeks ago, and I had to have a conversation based on basically this passage of Scripture. I had to say, you know what? I love you. You confess Christ with your mouth. Brother, I'm not seeing that he has made much difference in your life. And I'm concerned for you. Now, at that point, if he says, well, I'm saved, I believe, and I, he rattles off what it means to be a Christian, what do I do? All I can do is say, brother, I love you. I hope that you have genuinely done that. Now, I'm still his friend. I'm still there with him. I'm still going to love him and enjoy that relationship. But I had to do that. Why did I have to do that? I had to do that because I, I'm not seeing that the reality of anything inside has changed anything on the outside. See, I can go share the gospel with people who profess to be atheists. I can share the gospel with people who profess to be other religions. I can, you know, profess and share the gospel with people uh, of whatever persuasion. But I need to make sure that I not overlook those who have confessed Christ with their mouth but have not in any way, shape, or form demonstrated a changed life, a changed heart. Because you see, that confession of faith for so many people has become just what the Pharisees were doing with washing their hands. What they were doing is saying, I'm ceremonially clean. I'm clean before God because I put this water on my hands. And you see, there's so many people say, I am ceremonially clean. I'm religiously clean. I'm spiritually clean. I believe that Jesus died. I'm a Christian. They might even know the truth. But the demons in hell do too. You see, there's been no genuine belief. No genuine trust. No genuine faith. And no genuine change. That's a hard word, isn't it? It really is. But how much harder to hear on Judgment Day, I never knew you. Let's bow.